The Rural Health Voice, Episode 87, Opioid Abatement Authority. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What is Virginia doing with the millions of dollars it will receive from the opioid lawsuits? Tony McDowell, Executive Director of the Opioid Abatement Authority, joined me to discuss how those funds will be used. Well, welcome, Tony. Thank you, Beth. Glad to be here. Appreciate you spending your time with us today. And I was looking at your your bio, and I saw that you've been a firefighter and a paramedic in the past life. Lots of little kids say they want to be a firefighter when they grow up. How did you actually do it? Yeah, no, thank you. I um, I sort of looked into that. You know, my dad had been a firefighter for a short while when I was a kid, and so, you know, I had that connection, and I was one of those kids that always wanted to be a firefighter. And I got my chance. When I was 18, I became a volunteer firefighter and an EMT, and I was going to college down in Blacksburg. I got a job working in the emergency room as an EMT. And then uh, a few years later, and I landed in a full-time uh, firefighter paramedic job in Henrico County and just loved it. I, I worked there for 25 years. I went through the ranks, uh, eventually became fire chief and, and then um, deputy county manager for public safety. And um, interestingly, interestingly enough, that's what led me to, that's part of what led me to have such an interest in um, the substance use disorder crisis, the opioid crisis and epidemic that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And you had a leadership role in developing Henrico County's comprehensive strategy to prevent, treat and support recovery from substance use disorders. What did you learn through that process? Right, so in 2018, I, I took on this role of deputy county manager for public safety. And so I, I went from uh, being involved in fire and EMS to also being involved in, you know, all manner of criminal justice, our, our police department, our sheriff's office, the, the courts, the jails. And what I found was that the intersectionality between all of those disciplines was, it, it all, everything seemed to trace back or root into substance use. And, you know, our jail was uh, full of people who had been charged either with some drug-related charge, um, but more more likely or more commonly, it was folks who had uh, developed an addiction. And in order to feed the addiction, there was shoplifting and there was trespassing and, and other types of um, charges of, that really point to a substance use disorder. And And, you know, I became interested in trying to address all the problems that emanate out from substance use disorder as a public safety issue. Um, but at the end of the day, if if you can help prevent people from using these substances in the first place, or you can help people find treatment, you can put together efforts to, to reach out to people and help them with recovery. You know, in short, if you can build a comprehensive strategy, then not only do you improve public safety, but you improve public health. And you are now the executive director of the Opioid Abatement Authority. What's the purpose of the authority? So the authority exists um, to distribute uh, settlement funds that come to Virginia from lawsuits and and court settlements related to 
um, those businesses that either were opioid uh, prescription opioid manufacturers, the uh, marketing companies that supported those manufacturers, and the distributors, both uh, wholesale and retail distributors of those products. And so the, as those um, settlements come to Virginia, um, there's a couple of different ways that they are distributed out to the localities and to state agencies. But the Opioid Abatement Authority does get the majority of those funds, 55%. And our job is to, um, within the within the confined uh, limits of the settlement agreement, our job is to uh, distribute those funds uh, across the Commonwealth. And we do that uh, in order to hit certain priorities and, and to assure certain uh, objectives are met that were outlined in the settlement and in uh, state statute. And we do it by partnering with um, with cities, counties, and with state agencies, who in turn uh, will be partnering with um, all kinds of uh, service providers. So treatment providers, uh, both private, nonprofit treatment providers, as well as recovery organizations, um, organiza organizations that help people that are dealing with substance use and so forth. So it's it's a pretty big tent, and um, we, you know, we're building the tent where um, all of these entities—the state, the local uh, organizations, the cities and, and counties, as well as service providers—can um, all come together uh, to to have that, um, hopefully, that seamless and comprehensive approach to help our our citizens. Mm -hmm. Often when funders talk about substance use disorders, they want to focus on prevention. Let's make sure that people don't start. Will the authority also be considering efforts for treatment and recovery? Absolutely. And so, the um, again, a lot of what we do is, is uh, the basis of it is the, the settlement that was issued by the federal court. And the settlement basically says that the funds shall be used for uh, efforts to abate the opioid uh, epidemic. And so the it comes down to the word abate, uh, and, and it, that term is defined in the settlement. It's also defined in the statute uh, that the General Assembly uh, enacted when they created the Opioid Abatement Authority. And abatement applies to anything that pertains to education, prevention, treatment, and supporting the recovery of people with opioid use, opioid use disorders and um, co-occurring addictions and uh, behavioral health and mental health illnesses. Um, it, but it, it's even broader than that because it talks about people that, that suffer from opioid use disorder or who are at risk uh, of opioid use disorder. And so really any efforts that pertain to preventing, treating, and providing uh, recovery supports for, for people uh, who have been impacted by opioid use would um, qualify. Sure, because we're increasingly learning that, you know, substance use disorders, addiction, you know, isn't so much uh, a, an issue of the individual as it is the issue of the individual's situation. You know, Virginia's slowly moving from looking at substance use disorders as a criminal or moral issue to a health issue, how will the best practices of comprehensive harm reduction be incorporated by the authority? Absolutely. And I, I think that you're seeing um, across the state. I, I, so I attended the, the Virginia Sheriff's Association meeting last week and heard nothing but 
um, positive comments from the sheriffs who were in attendance about the need to provide more support for people that are suffering from this addiction. And I heard the same from uh, from Attorney General Mayares directly at that conference, which is, you know, helping people who are suffering from addiction really um, involves taking the stigma out of it and, and, and helping people where they are. And you're right, it's the people and places things that that keep people trapped in the cycle of addiction. Um, comprehensive harm reduction uh, specifically is indicated as a potential use of the funds. And so to the extent that we have cities and counties and state agencies that are looking to implement those programs and, and uh, may want to use their opioid abatement funds to do so, it certainly is an allowable use. Um, beyond that, we also have the ability to evaluate whether or not um, comprehensive harm reduction efforts, whether it's a needle exchange, um, sharing um, resources for people who are dealing with addiction, uh, distributing uh, naloxone, distributing fentanyl test strips, all of those types of best practice harm reduction efforts, uh, you know, we, we want to see those available statewide. And so if the authority sees an area of the state where there's a gap in those types of programs, then we have the ability to issue out RFPs for organizations to step up and um, develop, implement, and administer those types of programs um, with potentially opioid abatement funds. So how much money will the authority receive? That's the, that's the big question. The settlements that have already been finalized and for which the money is flowing uh, will total, for Virginia uh, as a whole, for the Commonwealth, about $530 million over 18 years. And uh, of that, 55% uh, will come to the authority. The rest will be distributed either directly to cities and counties uh, which will be 30%, and then 15% um, um, will go to the to the Commonwealth. Now, the money that's going directly to the Commonwealth, the 15%, the money that's going to um, cities and counties, um, all that money is required to be spent. Um, let me back up. At least 85% of that money is required to be spent on abatement. And so it's not like a money grab that we're going to use to, um, you know, to fill holes in municipal budgets. It's money that is uh, clearly intended in the court order to be used to help abate the opioid crisis. And so that's good news. It, it provides funds directly to localities that have been harmed, directly to the Commonwealth, so those funds can be invested in um, the agencies of state government to support people dealing with substance use. And uh, again, 55% coming to the abatement authority so that we can make sure that funds are, are being directed to um, across the Commonwealth in a in a manner that's um, that's that's equitable uh, geographically and that's that takes into account the fact that um, you know we've got pockets of the state. I mean, the entire state has suffered, right? There's not any community in Virginia that hasn't been harmed um, by these prescription opioids, but there's some communities that have suffered more than others, and so. A big part of our job is is to be mindful of that and to make sure that that those resources are are provided accordingly. Now, the other part of your question about how much money is coming, um, we have to anticipate looking into the future. Are there other settlements that are going to come about? And I, I am quite confident that the answer to that is yes. 
Um, but if you were to ask me how much money we could expect, that's a that's a much more difficult question to answer because there are companies uh, out there across the United States that are dealing with litigation um, that have not yet come to the settlement table. And so uh, I don't know that I want to call those companies out, but think of your large pharmaceutical um, distributors, your large pharmacies, retail pharmacies, um, against whom lawsuits have been filed, um, both in Virginia and across the nation. And at some point, it's reasonable to predict that some of those large uh, retailers um, may uh, consider settlement offers with the with the Commonwealth of Virginia and other states. So my understanding that the funds for the authority will be split as 35% for regional projects, 35% for projects identified by the board, 15% for state identified abatement initiatives, and 15% reserved for locally identified abatement initiatives. So let's talk about those individually. How will the regional projects be selected? So it, if I may, it might be a little bit easier to start by talking about the 15% that goes to the localities. Sure. And once we talk about that, then the, the regional kind of builds on it. So okay. this uh, really is a settlement of a lawsuit. And so the only the parties to the lawsuit who then became parties to the settlement can receive the funds. Uh, and that's based on the on the court order, the federal court order. And so in Virginia, the parties to the settlement are the 133 cities and counties in the Commonwealth. So every city, every every county in the Commonwealth and the Commonwealth itself, the, the state government. And so the 15 percent represents uh, a portion for each city and for each county. And those funds uh, will be reserved by the authority for those cities and those counties. And it's basically the money that they are entitled to under the settlement agreement. And so for each city and each county in the Commonwealth, we know exactly, like down to the penny, how much money we um, have reserved for them in the current year. And they're entitled to that money, but the only way they can get the money that they're entitled to is they have to meet uh, the Opioid Abatement Authority's terms and conditions. And for the most part, those are terms and conditions that are also part of the state code and part of the, the settlement agreement. Our job is really just to kind of enforce those. So the way each city and each county will be able to draw down the uh, reserved funds that they have from the authority is basically just to explain to us what it is that they propose to do with the money. Um, we have, we're required by code to, uh, to do the due diligence on those proposed efforts to prove or to demonstrate that the efforts are um, evidence-based, that there's a, a record of success of those programs either in that community or somewhere else in Virginia, somewhere else in the country, so that we're not, um, you know, gambling the money away, so to speak, but instead that we're spending it on things that, that, are, that have a reasonable chance at success. Um, and then the localities are, are required to allow us to evaluate the work as it's being done and to report back to us what the what the results were, what the outcomes were. So if a city or a county can tell us, here's how we want to spend the money, um, here's what the program looks like, this is why we're using this program, and here's some sort of evidence that, that it's reasonable to think that it's going to work, and here's the type of data that we're going to be able to provide you, then at that point our board um, is in a position to um, approve that funding. 
So it really uh, is not up to the board to say, well, we don't, you know, in this particular um, pot of funding, it's not really the Opioid Abatement Authority's board um, discretion to say, well, you, you're saying that you want to spend the money on uh, treatment, but we really think you should spend it on housing. Um, that's not the way this particular bucket of, of money works. It, as long as they meet the terms and conditions, then, then they'll be able to get their hands on that money. Now, if they want additional money beyond what's reserved for them, then that's a different story. That becomes a bit of a competitive application process. And so, which is a segue to the regional funding, which is 35% of the funds that we'll give out. And so what is a region? <laughs> a region is defined uh, for this purpose as at least two of the localities working together formally. So it could be two, two counties or uh, two counties in a city or a county in a city or, or any combination of um, counties and cities working together to form a, a joint effort. And then they would, they have the ability to compete for additional funds and the, the Opioid Abatement Authority board will um, ensure that at least 35% of its annual budget will go to those regional projects. And so unlike the, the funds that are going directly to the cities and counties, there's no specific amount reserved for any particular um, regional project on the front end. It's, it's more of a, of a process of regions coming up with ideas and bringing those ideas to the board. Or, alternatively, the board could do an RFP itself and say, you know, request for proposals. We, the board could identify a particular geographical area of the Commonwealth and approach some of the cities and counties in that area and say, hey, we'd like for you to give us a proposal to do X. And then if the proposal looks good, then we could fund it. Sure. So for the regional projects, it could be maybe a, a health district or a planning district commission or a maybe one of the, the hospital um, service areas pulling together for some of these projects. Absolutely. The But the not to split hairs here, but the the code requires that the funds that we administer go to um, we can only give the money to a city or a county. Ah. So we cannot give the money to a community services board. We can't give it to a, a, a community hospital. We can't give it directly to a health district because those entities are not cities, they're not counties, and they're not state agencies. Does that make sense? So, uh, oh, absolutely. But a city and a county can absolutely partner with those organizations, and, and we want them to. But at the end of the day, the city or the county has to oversee the effort. They have to serve as the as the fiscal agent, and they will have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that the funds are used appropriately and actually are used to, to help people. Sure. So with that, you know, I with all the different entities that we work with, I see a lot of people doing things in the areas of substance use disorder. But in, in my perspective, a county government isn't necessarily an expert on comprehensive harm reduction and, and what needs to be done. How do we make sure that they know what they're doing? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, the relationships between county governments and their um, community services boards or behavioral health authority, wh whatever they have in their area, is different from county to county. And, you know, where I used to work in Henrico, 
uh, we our community services board was also the Henrico County Department of uh, Mental Health and Development Services. It was kind of one and the same. And so in that particular example, the county really was very heavily involved. Um, but there's other areas of the county where you have one community services board that serves four, five, six, seven different localities. And a locality might be, you know, a little bit separated from the um, service delivery end of what their CSB does, even though the locality may be providing financial support and might be providing programmatic support. The, ultimately, that's in some cases, the, it's the CSB that's actually out there doing the work. And so we're going to, um, part of what the Opioid Abatement Authority is doing, what I'm doing, what our team is really working on, is making sure that, that counties and, and cities understand that, that the way to approach this challenge is going to be through partnerships and and to talk to their um, to their CSBs, talk to the Behavioral Health Authority, talk to their um, their health district. You know, health districts are state agent. Well, they're they're districts of a state agency that are cooperatively funded with localities. And so these relationships get a little bit complicated and a little nuanced. And you know, it's not the Opioid Abatement Authority's job to tell localities how they have to spend the money, but we definitely want to encourage them to think about you know, what are the best practices for delivering these kinds of services? And then what's the vehicle for the county to make that happen? So I'm speaking uh, on a regular basis with the Virginia Association of Counties, with the Virginia Municipal League. I've been going and meeting with county and city officials to meet with them and, and go over this whole program with them. And we'll continue to do that. That's going to be an active part of our outreach uh, to make sure that we do that. And it's important to note, that the Opioid Abatement Authority's board has two representatives of community services boards um, as uh, gubernatorial appointees on the on our board. So Sharon Buckman from the Piedmont uh, CSB and Daryl Washington from Fairfax Falls Church um, CSB. They're both board members and um, absolutely have a voice at the table. And um, several other members of the, of the board who represent very specific disciplines within this space, including a um, uh, Dr. Jimmy Thompson is an addiction uh, doctor. He's a he runs an, an outpatient um, addiction treatment center, the Master Center, and uh, of course Dr. Um, Sarah Melton, who's a, a pharmacist in Southwest Virginia. So we're trying to bring all that expertise and the knowledge to the table and share that with with the cities and counties who. Uh, are going to be receiving these settlement funds. So if a community-based organization works to address substance use disorders, and there are many in rural Virginia, should they be approaching their local government entity and say, hey, we've got ideas, we think you should address this? Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think that the, the key uh, in putting all this together is to realize that this problem is so big that there's not any one... Um, entity or one set of organizations that's going to be able to solve it on its own. So it's going to take community-based organizations working with the localities, working with um, you know quasi-governmental regional or efforts and regional programs, and working with the state. Um, everybody's sort of pulling the same direction on the same rope. So I would absolutely encourage your listeners, um, particularly individuals that work um, in community-based organizations 
to you know strengthen that relationship with the with the city government with the county government um, of the people that you serve make sure that those governments know what you're doing for their residents um, you know and at the same time learn more about the that government that city or that county and and what their strategies are for dealing with substance use disorders and you know it might not look like a treatment strategy but they may have a strategy as it pertains to um, how they handle criminal justice diversion for for people with addiction who are criminal justice involved um, you know get to know your sheriffs because they operate the jails and the jails are you know we unfortunately that's the main place people detox in Virginia you know and the and who would have ever thought that sheriffs would be running this level of uh, substance use detox and treatment and so it's all about building those relationships and making sure that your local governments know what your community-based organizations are, are doing, what they're capable of doing if they had more resources, and building those relationships. Now, the 15% reserved for the individual localities, is it the same amount of money for each county? Is it divvied up by population? Is it divvied up by the impact? How, how does that work? As the settlement, national settlement was being developed, there was a formula that was created and um, approved by all the parties, the, the plaintiffs and defendants nationwide, that was, um, it was quite a bit of research that involved the academic community and, and a number of um, professionals from the healthcare world to create a measure of harm per capita associated with the prescription opioid epidemic. And so Virginia is using that same methodology and or has used that same methodology to evaluate the the measure of harm per capita for each city and each county in Virginia. And so it's heavily weighted by their population, but it also takes into account the fact that some communities um, had more harm that occurred than others. And so, that formula then dictates the percentage for each county and city in Virginia, and that percentage adds up to 100%. So as an example, when I was working in Enrico County, I think the percentage the, of, the, of any um, distribution to cities and counties, Enrico County gets 4.473892.1%. Now I'm making that, I don't remember the exact, all the numbers after the decimal, because there's a bunch of numbers after the decimal, but, you know, we're dealing with a large amount of money, so so those hundreds and thousands of integers matter. But for Henrico, it was 4.473 something. Um, and each locality in the state knows what their number is. And so you've got the, the that 15%, that pot that's in there, and let's say that that 15% came to $1,000. Because Henrico County gets 4.473%, then they know that that means that they'll get um, you know, here now I'm, you're going to catch me with the math. They get they'll get 4.473 percent of the thousand dollars, if that matters. Sure. And I'm only using thousand dollars as an example. Yeah, yeah. Because it's more like millions of dollars. Exactly, exactly. So each locality knows how much what their percentage is, and so there's no surprises associated with that. They all agreed to that when they signed the memorandum of understanding. Sure. So. With that, is there going to be like an official application process that they need to know about? Yes, and that um, that's on me and my team to put that together. Um, 
are you know we've got a couple of um, goals when doing that one is we don't want this to be burdensome so we want to make it as simple and straightforward as possible at the same time that goal is a little bit in conflict with the fact that um, we're required to be really good stewards of this money and track it well and understand how it's being spent so we have to track all of that information in the application process um, my mind is my vision for this is that we have some sort of online portal that a city or a county can you know they have an account they can log into it and all their information including how much money is reserved for them is is in the portal and they just need to provide some basic information for us and then that's everything we need to um, make a recommendation to our board to make awards um, and then once the money's been awarded then the locality is notified through the portal and they are off and running so that's something that we're going to be working on as I onboard staff um, I've already got I've offered uh, two people positions with the authority uh, one position is a um, director of finance the other is a director of operations and those folks will be uh, coming on board in October and you know top of the list uh, for those two individuals and for myself is to build that grant process and build this system and we really hope to be able to share it out and provide information and training on it uh, across the state in the February March time frame. Sure. And let's talk more about that timeline. When do you expect the funds to start going to communities? So uh, just to be clear, some of the money um, that is the direct settlement funds has already started going to communities. Um, and I'll talk about that more in a second. But the funding from the Opioid Abatement Authority, um, our, our plan, our, our target, and our goal is to get the first round of funding out on July 1st of next year. And, you know, I'd love to get it out immediately, but, again, this is where we have the, we have competing goals because we're extremely cognizant of the fact that people are suffering, that people need help, people are dying of overdoses, families are being impacted, communities are being impacted, and so we want to get the money out. But uh, we're also really um, focused on making sure that the money uh, goes out in a thoughtful manner and that we're making the best use of these resources so that um, so that they're not, you know, spent on something totally inappropriate, or that somebody doesn't divert them um, inappropriately, or that they get they get lost or wasted, what have you. And so, those goals are in tension with each other. And because of that, we've and because we're brand new, we've got to put some time into to building the foundation of this thing properly. Once it's built, the the funds should be able to go out on a pretty regular, you know, annual basis, and should go. Pr- you know, the goal is for it to go pretty smoothly. But if I can get back just for a second to the funding that's already gone out to localities, again, this is the, the portion of the settlements that that um, they go directly to the cities and counties, directly from the defendants. Well, they, it goes from the defendants to a settlement administrator that was appointed by the courts, and then the settlement administrator um, um, sends it out to the cities and counties across the state. The first payment from um, from the first settlement, uh, which was against a group of three major wholesale distributors, uh, McKesson, Cardinal Health, and Amerisource Bergen. This is the um, settlement that was all over the news last year because it's going to come to about $26 billion nationwide over 18 years. Um, Virginia's getting about 
um, 2.8 percent of that and so um, the, the distributors are actually giving the localities the first two years of payments right now. They're getting localities are getting their 2021 payment, and they're going to get their 2022 payment. The 2021 payment went out on July 29th. Um, the The second payment should be going out. Um, I was told in September, but it should be any day now. <laughs> um, those two amounts will be very similar. And then they'll continue, the cities and counties will continue to get payments from this settlement every year for a total of 18 years. And then the second settlement, which is with Johnson & Johnson, or their pharmaceutical arm, Janssen, um, they're getting their first settlement from that, the cities and counties are getting their first settlement from that, um, I'm sorry, they're getting their first distribution from that settlement sometime in October, is the, the most recent estimate. And interestingly, um, the Janssen settlement is going to be paid out over 10 years instead of 18. But they're going to be giving Virginia and each of its cities and counties the full, four, the full first four years all up front. So when cities and counties across Virginia get their first payment from Janssen, it's going to be a big check because it involves the first four years. Then they won't get, they won't get anything from Janssen in year two, year three, and year four, but it'll pick back up again and they'll get years five through nine, which is a, a total of, uh, it'll take place over a total of 10 years. And so it's really important for localities to, to be paying attention <laughs> to the letters that they've gotten from the, from the settlement administrator and uh, the information that's been provided by the Office of the Attorney General and and by the Opioid Abatement Authority to be able to anticipate exactly what those funds are that they're going to be receiving directly and then think about what kind of partnerships they can enter into with community organizations to um, use those funds to um, help people that are suffering from uh, opioid use disorder. And so aside from the, the funds that are going directly to the localities, there's that big pot of money for regional projects and projects identified by the board. The board members have a considerable power over the funds. How are they selected? The, um, the, the, the selection criteria for the members of the board is laid out pretty clearly in the code section, the statute under which we were um, created. And this was a, a bipartisan effort by the General Assembly during the 2021 session. And so there's an, it's an 11-member board, and eight of those are citizen appointees of the governor. But, the, but it's, not, um, it's not intended to be a political board. And what I mean by that is, as an example, we have one seat that is reserved for a practicing city or county attorney, a licensed practicing city or county attorney who is nominated by the city and county uh, attorneys association. And, you know, similarly, we have a sheriff who is um, recommended by the Virginia Sheriff's Association. And so these are not simply individuals that the governor has selected uh, at, at his, purely at his discretion. They've been nominated by their peers uh, to serve in, in this capacity. And so you've got, uh, in addition to the um, the representative of the Sheriff's Association, the representative of the City and County uh, Attorneys Association, you've also got 
two um, community service boards representatives, one representing rural community services board or CSB that represents a, a primarily rural area, uh, a community services board representative that represents a more urban area. You've got um, two members of the medical community that focus on addiction uh, treatment that are that represent the clinical medical community. You've got a representative of the recovery community or an individual who works um, with the with the individuals in the recovery community. Um, and then you've got a member of the Senate, you've got a member of the House, and you've got um, the Secretary of Health and Human Resources or his designee. And so that that's kind of the composition of the board. The um, the the eight citizen appointees, even though they're they represent certain groups, they're all um, serving as gubernatorial appointees. So these aren't a bunch of the governor's buddies. These are people with vested interest in the issue. That's right. In fact, you um, anybody you talk to in Richmond, I think, will will tell you that this is a bipartisan issue. Um, our our board members were appointed uh, in the previous administration, and um, but are continuing to work. Um, now that there's been a, a change in the administration, they're, they're, you know, we're, our board has been very active. And so some of the positions on the board are tied to, um, you know, so the, the Senate position is the, is the um, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee or his designee. The representative from the House is a representative of the House Appropriations Committee or his designee. And obviously the Secretary of um, Health and Human Resources is is a person that's appointed by the governor. So as those seats change through the normal cycle of elections, then the individuals that are in those seats will change also because they are, um, because it's tied to whoever's in that seat. But it's, you're right, it's not, um, this is not a political, um, uh, a, this is, I shouldn't say it's not political because by definition it is, but it's it's bipartisan effort. And it's really, well-balanced group that um, I've really enjoyed working with. So, you know, you mentioned if you ask anybody in Richmond, and I think sometimes those of us who are not in Richmond are a little leery of the opinions of people in Richmond. So why should the people in the hard-hit areas of Southwest and Southside Virginia trust a guy from Henrico with the money intended for their community? <laughs> That's... No, I, that's a fair question, um, and I, I will say that the, the context was uh, when I was saying that the board is bipartisan. What I meant is, if you ask the politicians, they'll tell you that even even from their perspective, um, this this is a bipartisan issue, and so I think that that's um, that's to the advantage of of what we're doing. Um, yeah, so folks that live in the rural parts of the community need to understand that that there are representatives on this board from from that area we've got um, uh, our chairman senator pillion is from southwest virginia uh, we have um, sarah melton who is a, a clinical pharmacist is also from southwest virginia um, delegate ballard is from southwest virginia our board member from um, uh, roanoke is in southwest virginia but of course there's other parts of virginia that are rural as well and I, I just, you know, I think that I could come up with all kinds of reasons why they should trust me, but I think ultimately the proof is going to be in the pudding. And words are cheap. It's action that people pay attention to. And so absolutely they should hold me and hold my staff and hold our board accountable for the decisions that we make and for the work that we do. 
um, you know, I, I can tell you that I'm not a career state employee. My career has been um, working in local government and, you know, you know, I, I like to think that I've gained some perspective from being a paramedic and going out and resuscitating and doing CPR and treating people who've overdosed in the field. And I started doing that when I was 18. And so I've kind of got that perspective of, you know, kind of the, not just an academic or, you know, sit behind the desk and pontificate kind of perspective, but I've been in the front lines helping people with substance use disorders. And so I've, I've seen how gritty and, and harsh and real the problem is. Um, but I don't consider myself an expert on what's happening in different parts of Virginia. And, and our board, every single member of the board has told me they want, to, they want us to be good about listening. And so we're working right now with the Virginia Association of Community Service Boards to set up a series of five listening sessions. These are going to be public meetings, one in each of the five um, Department of Behavioral Health regions of the state. And we're going to be traveling, we, myself, members of, of our board, are going to be traveling out to um, all corners of the state to um, meetings where the public, where stakeholders, service providers are going to be invited and welcomed to come in. And, and it's, it's not about listening to us. I mean, I think we should, enter the Opioid Abatement Authority folks will introduce ourselves and we'll explain what we're doing and why we're there. But really it's about giving us the chance to listen to the concerns that people in the community have and and let us hear from you what you think the gaps are and what needs are not being met and what can what can Richmond do to help you in your community what can the opioid abatement authority do and I think that it's going to be really important for us to keep our ears open and, and really listen to what people are dealing with so that when we um, make recommendations when the board makes decisions that they're doing that fully informed on on what the needs across the Commonwealth are. Sure. And once you get that meeting schedule set, let us know. We'll be happy to promote it for you. No, absolutely. And that's that's an example of where I know we can't do this by ourselves. And um, we're going to be looking for help uh, getting the word out and making sure that people feel like they've been invited and that they have the opportunity to come and speak. So the last question, question I asked all my guests, okay. if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? Um, well, I, it's, I kind of feel like that's why I was sort of driven to take this job. <laughs> I can't think of uh, a more critical crisis in Virginia, and, and I'll admit I come to this from a little bit of a public safety perspective, uh, and there's a real blurring of the line between public safety and, and public health because they they really cross over each other a lot. But, um, I mean, every overdose that happens, and we have as many as five people a day dying in Virginia on average, and every single one of those is preventable. And what we're dealing with is just absolutely tragic. And so I've kind of pivoted my own personal career to dig into this issue and to show up every day like our board members do um, each and every one of them is passionate about about making this thing happen we want to see um, we want to see the numbers going the other way we want to see uh, the people that are getting addicted we want to see those numbers plummet we want to see the overdoses disappear to zero we want to see people 
able to go to work every day, make a living, um, be with their family, and enjoy their lives and not have the, the scourge of addiction hanging over them. And, um, and when we do that, then I think you'll see community-wide benefits that cross over into all kinds of different areas impacting community health. You know, what would, what would we be able to do if we didn't have overcrowding in the jail? What would we be able to do for people um, if, we, if we didn't have to put so many resources into responding to all the problems that come about from addiction? And so, to me, it's a, it's a core issue, and every person that we can help, every um, addiction that we can prevent or lead into recovery, I think makes a community stronger. And um, Senator Pillion said, and I agree with him, this is the Lord's work that we've been called to do. And regardless of what your faith is, that's, uh, I think that's a true statement, and I know that it's, it's certainly what motivates me. And Senator Pillion has been an amazing advocate for addressing the opioid crisis from every angle. Oh, absolutely. And um, it's a, you know, I knew that I had made the right decision applying for this job when I had my first meeting with him. So um, absolutely. We're, we're, I hate to use the word thrilled when we're talking about anything related to the opioid epidemic, but I'm, I'm thrilled. I know our board members are thrilled that we have the opportunity to take these funds and make a difference with them. It's, it's very exciting and very encouraging. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. That's Tony McDowell with his plan to reverse the opioid crisis. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, check out the Virginia Rural Health Association on Facebook and Twitter. Visit vrha.org and click the logos on the top right corner of the page. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.